The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Should we think about this disease in a more physiologically oriented way that can help us redefine it as a syndrome that has severity along a continuum uh, and that continuum parallels the continuum of high blood pressure? Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call focuses on an article from the July 7, 2020 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine titled, The Unrecognized Prevalence of Primary Aldosteronism, a Cross-Sectional Study. Joining us as guest is the first author of this paper, Dr. Jennifer Brown, who's a clinical and research fellow in cardiovascular medicine at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. We hope you enjoy and learn much from this podcast. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I read your study uh, several times and I'm totally fascinated by uh, the topic and your findings. Uh, and for those who have been listening to the podcast for a while, a couple of years ago, you had another study about uh, diagnosing increased uh, aldosterone in people who were not even hypertensive and seeing what happened to them. Uh, but this really takes us to different levels. So uh, why don't you describe the study uh, in, in a way that uh, our listeners can understand? And I think this is really important for outpatient physicians, for hospitalists, and for house staff, and anybody who takes care of patients with hypertension. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I think the first thing to say is, you know, kind of what was our objective with this study? What were we trying to do? And I think that really came from a gap that we recognized between, on the one hand, we know that primary aldosteronism is associated with an important amount of cardiovascular risk, bad outcomes even above the impact of high blood pressure, and there are existing therapies. And on the other hand, despite increasing evidence that this syndrome exists uh, in hypertension that's more mild or even in normal blood pressure, that there's a big gap between the prevalence of the disease and how often we actually make the diagnosis or screen. And you know, the evidence suggests that probably even in resistant hypertensive patients where we should be screening, we're testing on the order of two or 3% of the eligible patients. So really it was that gap that motivated us not really to do a study looking at what's the point estimate of the prevalence of this disease, but should we think about this disease in a more physiologically oriented way that can help us redefine it as a syndrome that has severity along a continuum, uh, and that continuum parallels the continuum of high blood pressure. And so uh, the way we did this study was with that physiologic approach in mind. Um, we pulled five different uh, study protocols uh, that shared a couple things in common. One is that all of the participants had sodium suppression testing, meaning they had an oral load of salt and had 24-hour urine measurements of aldosterone that integrate a full 24 hours of production of aldosterone through the day. And 
the other thing that these populations did was allow us to look across the spectrum of blood pressure from normal tension to mild hypertension, all the way to resistant hypertension, and across different populations in the U.S. And so we included in that five protocols, four that were uh, volunteer studies that were trying to better define hormonal mechanisms of blood pressure, and then one research protocol embedded in the University of Alabama, Birmingham, resistant hypertension clinic, uh, studying patients at the most extreme end of resistant hypertension. And I'll say that the idea of using sodium suppression testing is really to get at the underlying physiology. And if we can focus on that physiology, it helps us to think about the disorder. So patients receive sodium loading, and that provides a clear context where we'd expect renin and angiotensin and aldosterone to be suppressed or off. And so any aldosterone that we measure in that context of sodium loading is really going to be renin independent, and that's the underlying physiology of primary aldosteronism. And I mentioned 24-hour urine aldosterone measurements. That really allows us to get past the issue that we know that circulating blood measurements of aldosterone are highly variable. And that probably contributes to why we often don't make this diagnosis even when we check an aldosterone to renin ratio because a single level might be low on one day and high on another. So we pooled these populations and then we looked across the hypertensive spectrum using the 2017 guideline definitions, normotensin stage one, stage two, and resistant hypertension, and, and showed really that there's a continuum, that there's aldosterone produced independent of renin that ranges from low levels, barely detectable, all the way to well above what the current thresholds are to diagnose primary aldosteronism. Well, let me restate a couple things and make sure that I understand it right, because um, I like to do that. First, I really like this idea of a continuum because it, I think that that's true for a lot of things in medicine. Um, you know, heart failure is not heart failure. There are different stages of heart failure. So what you're saying is that aldosteronism is not aldosteronism. There are really stages of aldosteronism almost. Uh, and the other thing that I think that we really ought to, ought to uh, emphasize, and I'd read it, and until you said it, I didn't really totally get this. And that is you give a sodium load. And the reason you give a sodium load is because that should suppress both renin and aldosterone. Well, you're really good at suppressing renin, but sometimes al aldosterone is not suppressed. And by definition, because it's not suppressed, it's renin independent. So that means the adrenal's making too much aldosterone. That's right. That's right. It's kind of autonomous of a usual <coughs> regulator. It should be under the control of renin. Of course, there are other things that turn on aldosterone, but primarily should be under the control of renin. And if renin is off and there's still aldosterone measured, then it's independent of renin. So given that background, and this comes from the, your 2017 study, for years and years, I thought about aldosteronism as an adenoma, uh, hypokalemia, severe hypertension. And your 2017 study that we previously did a podcast on talked about these aldosterone clusters. Perhaps you could just say a little bit something about the idea of aldosteronism not just being an adenoma. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, we can't really answer the question from our study necessarily, but it certainly raises the question of, how, you know, how is this so common? Because it's not that we'd say that all these people have uh, adenoma or even hyperplasia. And so there has been um, evidence over the last decade or so um, that there are small islands of cells uh, that can be identified by immunohistochemistry that 
that have uh, aldosterone synthase expression more than they should, and that uh, those are often enriched for somatic mutations. So that's one appealing hypothesis about uh, what might be the biology underlying this frequent syndrome. Um, also, uh, you know, adiposity and other um, states that have been implicated in kind of uh, prevalent aldosteronism, but uh, we'd still be speculating, I think, at this point, but that's an appealing one. One of the things that, that really strikes me in this study is that the standard way that uh, I was taught to screen for aldosteronism is probably subadequate. That when it's it's very, very specific, but not very, very sensitive. And could you go over that sensitivity and specificity and what you think? And, and then when should we screen on the basis of these data? Because making the diagnosis is likely to change how we treat the patient and think about the patient. So I need some guidance here. Absolutely. So I think, um, you know, we know that we are supposed to be checking an aldosterone to renin ratio. That's the recommended screening test. And the first thing to say is we're not even checking that in most of the patients who would qualify. So, you know, we should be looking in patients who are severe or resistant hypertension, meaning, you know, uncontrolled on three drugs or needing at least four drugs for control, who are hypertensive, you know, with atrial fibrillation, maybe with sleep apnea, uh, with adrenal adenoma, certainly um, with any hypokalemia, even if they're not hypertensive or they have diuretic-induced hypokalemia. But then what do we do with this aldosterone to renin ratio? So we showed that if we tested everyone with the sort of gold standard confirmatory test and then looked back and said, you know, how good would the aldosterone to renin ratio have been? You know, we end up with a sensitivity that's only in the range of 25 to 50%. Um, and in resistant hypertension, you know, we have a negative predictive value only 80%, meaning we're erroneously excluding this diagnosis in a high-risk population where, as you said, we would probably change how we treat them. What I've learned uh, over the last 10 to 15 years is regardless of testing for aldosteronism, when I have resistant hypertension, I need a fourth drug. The fourth drug should always be an aldo antagonist. Is, is this true partially because we're underdiagnosing the aldosteronism? So by doing a test to see whether or not they have increased aldo, uh, all the positives do have it, but many of the negatives also have it. That's right. And I think that gets to the key here, which is that really our focus, you know, we would say should be on renin suppression, that a measurement of aldosterone in the blood that's technically high or technically low, you know, that's really not the, the issue here. It's that any aldosterone produced when renin is suppressed could be abnormal and that renin suppression tends to be uh, potentially a more stable and useful biomarker for us of, um, of this physiology. And there's many years of history of thinking about the use of mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists or aldosterone blockade in so-called low renin hypertension. And so, you know, what we're advocating really is that we should be looking at the renin status at the very least and saying, if renin is suppressed, then this is a population where we have evidence, as you said, from pathway two, for example, in resistant hypertension, that, that the efficacy of these drugs is going to be the greatest for controlling blood pressure. And actually, in, in our study, if we look in the resistant hypertension population and say, what proportion of those patients who had a low renin would have met our current criteria for a diagnosis, it's about half. So already it's a very enriched population uh, where we should be thinking about using these drugs. Let's consider 
testing in two different scenarios. So let's say I'm in a uh, primary care practice and someone comes in, which of my hypertensives should I test? And then I'm an academic hospitalist, so we get a lot of patients with fairly severe hypertension. Who of those people should we test to try to help the primary care physician? Because it's easier to do testing in the hospital than it is in the outpatient setting. I guess what I would say first is that I think one reason that we don't test as much as we should is that we have a a perception that it's pretty onerous, that you have to do a lot of different manipulations to be testing the right way. And so I think the first thing to say is that we should be thinking about the most streamlined and easy way to test to diagnose this because we think this is a common syndrome and a common continuum. And so, you know, we would advocate that, for example, you don't need to take the patients off of drugs because washing off of drugs is a big ordeal in these already hypertensive patients, um, that we don't have to be particularly strict about what time of day or anything else, that just when they're in the office, they can sit down in the phlebotomy lab and have aldosterone and renin measured. And I think we have less guidance about what to do in the inpatient setting. But I think still, if we have a patient where we're going to you know, have our hands on them and able to get some labs and figure out something, then it's reasonable, I think, to be testing aldosterone and renin in a seated posture, basically, in, in those patients. And uh, we'll probably want to retest them again in the outpatient setting to confirm what you find, but at least you've started the ball rolling. And then really, you know, although we say the sensitivity of the aldosterone to renin ratio isn't good, really the key, I think, is that we just think physiologically about the numerator and the denominator. So if we can look at the renin and say, this renin is suppressed, now I'm already thinking about this diagnosis, and then look at the aldosterone and say, well, is it frankly high? It's, it's more than 15 nanograms per deciliter. This is overtly a positive screen. I, I know this patient should be, for example, referred to specialty care and have imaging and think about surgery even. Or is it frankly low? It's less than five. I, I have a low suspicion and it seems unlikely, though I might still use a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist for that patient if they're resistant. Or is it somewhere in the middle where my decision depends, you know, can they get to the specialist easily? Should they just go on an empiric um, spironolactone, for example, um, because I'm thinking about this disorder? That's really helpful. So rather than looking at the ratio, look at the renin. If the renin suppressed, then we're really concerned. If the aldo is suppressed, then we don't have it. If the aldo is not suppressed but not really high, then we're still in the the we're not 100 sure. If it's if they're in the gray zone, they're probably early in the spectrum. That's right. We think they're probably just a milder form. Right. Um, and then if, it's above, if the aldo is above 15 with renin suppression, then we probably need an endocrinologist and maybe an endocrinological surgeon. We need to do an evaluation to see whether or not there's an adenoma. Because some of these patients, even with high ones, won't have adenomas. Is that right? That's right. I think it's, it's likely that the patients with adenoma will have the highest levels of aldosterone, although even they can have very variable levels and be measured low on a certain day and high another day. So if we have a high suspicion, we shouldn't exclude the diagnosis. But uh, it's definitely the case that many of the patients who will be frankly positive are still going to be patients for whom medical therapy is the right approach. I know we've we've already touched on this, but I think it's important to reemphasize not everybody with increased aldosterone has a low potassium and a high sodium. Absolutely. I think that that's a critical point. You know, the most 
severe forms, the most overt, you know, the patients who might have a level of aldosterone that's well above the current binary or categorical cutoffs, those people may be hypokalemic, but certainly we see plenty of patients, you know, without hypertension at all and with normal potassiums who, when we tested them now using a confirmed sodium suppression, kind of a, a physiologic manipulation, we can confirm the diagnosis. So we shouldn't right. be reassured falsely. We probably don't need to do the uh, suppression, the sodium suppression test ourselves. We can we can still just reanalyze the sodium, uh, just reanalyze the renin and the aldo. That's right. Yeah, I, we would not advocate that type of testing in the generalist office. It's really you know that's for patients where you think there's some ambiguity or there's going to be follow up, you know, testing that should be done by the endocrinologist. Otherwise. You know, even though aldosterone and renin are not perfect measured from the blood, they're, you know, we should be thinking about them. And it's certainly better than nothing to help us identify these patients. Very early in my career, I think spironolactone um, was one of, the, one of the options for treating people fairly early. Now, you have to remember, I'm old enough that uh, I, we, we mostly used alpha methyl dope, but we didn't have ACE inhibitors. We didn't have uh, beta blockers. We didn't have calcium channel blockers. As you talk to your colleagues around the country and uh, people who are interested in this kind of work, uh, are we delaying the use of uh, mineralocorticoids? Um, are, we, are we too scared of giving mineralocorticoids uh, suppression in 2020? I think it, it gets to the point, which is that for most patients with hypertension, we can control their blood pressure with a variety of drugs, you know, and it's certainly simple in the office to start a calcium channel blocker that doesn't require any follow-up labs. And, and, and patients mostly, when they're in a mild stage of disease, will respond with you know, improvement in blood pressure control, whether they start on a thiazide or an ACE inhibitor or a calcium channel blocker. So I think that is one of the barriers to, to introducing these drugs earlier because it, we say, well, they're going to be controlled. And so the, the, the point would be, that we're concerned that by not treating the underlying pathophysiology, that those patients are potentially accumulating excess cardiovascular risk. They're going to be potentially progressing their hypertension more quickly and having the, the adverse downstream consequences. And so I think one concern that people have is about hyperkalemia if we introduce mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. And that's a reasonable concern based on trials in heart failure where we've seen an increase in hyperkalemia after these drugs started to be used more often. But I think we should make the point that when people have primary aldosteronism anywhere along this continuum, that the tendency is actually to waste potassium. So these patients are not as likely to have hyperkalemia on the drugs. And if we're blocking the adverse effects of these drugs beyond just blood pressure control, that you know, that's an important goal and maybe warrants a little bit more monitoring of potassium, even though it's not quite as simple as starting a calcium channel blocker. So I do think people are hesitant, but hopefully we can make the argument that, um, that this is really a targeted intervention to the type of hypertension the patient has. Well, this has been just tremendous. I think that what you've done is you made us think about uh, aldosterone uh, in a more expansive way than uh, most of us were taught and most of us continue to think about it. And I, I think it's really important that, that we understand, I just, I just love the way that you explained the continuum concept of mild to moderate to severe uh, aldosteronism. I, I, think, I think that's gonna be very helpful to all of us as we consider our patients. So can't thank you more for uh, joining us on the podcast.
Great. Thanks so much for having me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This wonderful discussion expanded the way that I now think about aldosteronism. I previously thought of it sort of dichotomous. You either had aldosteronism or you didn't, rather than as a continuum of severity. I also always thought of hypokalemia and resistant hypertension, not understanding that most aldosteronism does not have hypokalemia and often doesn't even have significant hypertension. However, given the treatment implications, I now will probably be searching more often in difficult-to-treat hypertension as well as resistant hypertension for the possibility of increased aldosterone. And I'll do that by checking a renin and an aldo and not going by the classic uh, ratio uh, that we've been taught, but rather is there suppression of renin and any significant aldo at all, that's probably too much aldo. I really look forward to learning more about the role of this hormone uh, in both cardiovascular disease and in hypertension and think that this is very interesting and worth our consideration. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.